Good morning. I want to welcome everyone to New Heights this morning. My name is Daryl Smith, and I serve as the worship pastor here at New Heights. You might be wondering where Michael is, and uh, I have to tell you that Michael takes his mission work very seriously, and um, you probably knew that. And this, this week he was called to a very tough, grueling mission in Aspen, Colorado. So... Uh, Michael's kind of a celebrity pastor to the stars, and there was a wedding uh, this, this, this weekend in Aspen, so he had to tough it out and, and go up there. So um, the good news for me, um, don't clap because this is recorded and he's going to hear this, is that he's allowing me not to talk about Matthew. So don't, no, you're very sad. You're very sad. You're very sad. We're all very sad. Um, and he's doing that very graciously just because um, where we were in the scripture of Matthew um, was the rich young ruler. And that is a, it's a, not one I was prepared to, to work on on a week's notice. He's ready for it. And we'll pick up um, there next week when he comes back. And I encourage you to be ready for that because it really is a, a rich text um, with a lot of information in there for us. Um, but what he's allowing me to do today is talk about worship. Um, the The bad news for how we're going to do this, how we're going to have this conversation for you, is you're probably going to leave here with more questions than you had when you got here. Um, I'm not going to, we're not going to have the kind of conversation that allows us to summarize and organize and have like a clear and concise way to state what worship is. The good news is, I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I think um, we need to find freedom in not organizing and, and making sense of everything, of being able to say... I don't know it all, or there's going to be something that I find out or learn after this. I have an understanding that is currently here, but I know that it's going to grow, and my understanding is going to grow, so it's going to continue to change. We need to be able to to recognize that tension between two things that don't seem to agree um, is a good thing sometimes, and that uh, it can actually be freeing and of God. So to ask this question... I'm going to start you off by having you talk to each other. What I want you to do is turn to your neighbor and ask these two questions right here. What is worship and what kind of worship service is New Heights? You guys turn to each other and discuss this for a few minutes. Y'all are being really quiet and polite. Come on, talk. Pretend that Michael was here. Y'all would be much more loud if Michael was here. Okay. Seriously, that was some of the quietest discussion y'all have ever had. Um, I don't know if y'all could hear yourselves. Did everybody have the same answers? Everybody say the same thing on what worship is and what kind of service we're in right now? If you did, if y'all all had the same answers, then we should, we should stop and, and go home or go to lunch because there's nothing left. But if you didn't, then that's normal. Oh, I heard some clapping for going home. Okay, anyway. Um, I want to read something to you. One of the scholars that I have been blessed to study under is a, is a man named Lester Ruth. He is a professor at Duke Divinity and at the Institute for Worship Studies. 
And I'm going to read to you from his, um, he had an essay in the 2009 Journal of American Theological Inquiry, which I know sounds fascinating, and it it really is. Um, But the the essay was called A Rose by Any Other Name, and this is the introduction. I'll put it up here in case you want to read along. How would you classify the worship of your church or parish? Is it contemporary or traditional? Are those terms too limited? Would the terms found in some recent youth ministry training materials be more helpful? In that case, would you classify your worship as linear or organic? Are you still at a loss for the right classification? Would these terms form from a recent online worship forum be more accurate? Multisensory worship, indigenous worship, innovative worship, transformation worship, blended worship, praise services, spirited traditional, creative, or classic worship? Or would ethic or racial designators be more descriptive of your service's character? Is it helpful to label your worship service as African-American, Hispanic, Euro-American, or by some other similar designation? Has the right term not been mentioned yet? If so, then how about multimedia worship, authentic worship, liturgical worship, praise and worship, or seeker services? Perhaps terms rooted in various intended audiences would be better. Believer-oriented worship. Believer-oriented worship made visitor-friendly. Or, phys- or visitor-oriented worship. Some now advocate classifications by generations, and so is your worship service. Boomer, Buster, Gen X, or Millennials worship. That cleared up? Everybody got an answer now? I don't know about you guys, but when the first time I read that, I was so tempted to um, identify New Heights. I didn't know where he was going. And so every time I read something, I would go, oh, that's New Heights. And then I'd read a little further, no, 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 that's New Heights. And, and I just kept trying to find ones that fit us. This is a tough question to answer. I get asked this question out in the community, in the grocery store, at school, you know, like, what kind of church do you go to? What kind of, what's your, what are your worship services like? What kind of church do you work for? And I mess this up. I mean, I answer that question. And I say something, and I, I'm sorry. I say something like, we're a contemporary church. I don't know what that means. It's, it's a terrible answer to say we're a contemporary church. We get really bogged down in these adjectives, these things that precede the word worship. And we spend a lot of time. This is a tough question to answer. So we, we kind of need to back up and ask the question, what is worship? Rather than working so much on the adjectives that precede the word worship, we remove the adjectives. Um, Lester, Ruth says he's done. He's done with the adjectives that come before the word worship. He uses them not at all because they don't tell you anything. Even if I used four or five of those descriptors to describe New Heights, it still wouldn't really encapsulate who we are as a community and what we do when we gather together. Um, So the good news, although it's a clouded question, and I choose that word on purpose, clouded, we've clouded this issue with all the adjectives that go before this. Um, We have done that in our history. And although it's clouded, it's really not a complicated question. It's complicated if we focus on the adjectives before, but it's not complicated if we focus just on worship. So to do that this morning, we're going to ask three questions about worship together. What do the scriptures tell us about worship? What does the overarching story of God's people tell us about worship? And what is worship not? And my hope is that by doing this, we're going to get an expanding, um, growing understanding of, of what worship is. The first question, what do the scriptures tell us about worship? The short answer to that question is they tell us a great deal. There's a lot in the scriptures about worship. 
I would even invite you to consider that the whole of the scriptures are inviting us into a life of worship. That that's the purpose, is to teach us to lead the kind of life that lives the scriptures, that lives in worship. That it asks us to consider two questions. Who is God and who are we going to be in response to God? That that's every story that you read in the Bible is asking you to answer those two questions. Who is God and who are you going to be in response? But we'll come back to those two questions. The scriptures definitely have more to tell us about worship than we can discuss in one morning. So for the sake of timing, we're going to zero in on an old, oldie but a goodie, one that we're probably all familiar with, and that's Jesus in John 4 talking to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And they've, they've been going in conversation for a while about a couple of different things. And we're going to pick the conversation up in, in the middle here where they start talking about worship. Uh, I'll put it up here if you want to read along. This is her talking as we start. Oh, so you're a prophet. Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worshiped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? And Jesus responds, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews. But the time is coming. It has, in fact, come when what you're called will not matter and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship Him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves, in adoration. So here's Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Son of God, the person who came to show us how to live Torah, the person who came to show us how to live accessing the kingdom of God every day. And he says, those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. How does that sentence inform our understanding of the word worship? Is that something that we do only here? Is that something that we do only on Sundays? We have to ask these kind of questions and say, what do the words of Christ do to our definition of worship? Hopefully, they push out on it, they expand it. We could actually stop here and wrestle with just this for a while. And I hope you do. I hope in your conversations as you go from here that you'll come back and think about this and talk about this. Um, but as I said, this morning is not about answers. It's about questions. So we will ask another one. The second question, what does the overarching story of God's people tell us about worship? Well, one thing that comes to mind when we look at the over, when I say overarching story, we're talking about the history, what we know that God has done, not just in the Bible, but coming forward even to now, because it's all his story. His story doesn't stop when the Bible ends, his story continues. So when we ask this, we're saying, look at the whole thing and what are we told? Well, one thing that we're told is to remember. It's kind of implicit. When we go back to the scriptures, we're remembering what God has done. When we look back in history, we're remembering what he's done, what he said about himself, what he's shown to us, what he's done for us. 
we're remembering, and that's a, a huge part of worship is remembering. Um, let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy 32 says, Remember the days of old, consider the years long past, ask your father, and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. Psalm 105, remember the wonderful works he has done, his miracles and the judgments he has uttered. New Testament, one that everyone's familiar with, I'm sure, Matthew 28. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a little preview of what's to come. That's the end of Matthew right there. When we get there, that means we're done. Um, there are over 260 forms of the word remember in the Bible. This is important. This is something God calls us to do. So let's remember Moses this morning at the burning bush. And excuse my um, very cool graphics. Yes, it's very cool. Um, okay, the story of Moses at the burning bush. If you don't know this, I'll give you a quick summary. Moses comes upon this burning bush. Out of it, God speaks to him and, and says, Moses, I've heard my people's cry. I want you to go back and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses' first response to that is actually the second question. Who am I? His first response is, he hears this and he goes, you got the wrong guy. Who am I that you would send me back to these people? I stutter. I'm a murderer. I'm on the lamb. I'm trying to hide out right now. You don't want me. I'm not your guy. God doesn't hear that and uh, pushes forward. And Moses' second question is, well, if I'm going back, who am I supposed to say that you are? Who are you? And God answers that question. This is not the beginning of our relationship to God. Clearly, Moses is a little bit further in the story. We have, before Moses, we have Adam and Eve. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, somewhere in there was Noah. We have other stories um, and other context about God. But I do believe this is where we start asking these questions. Where we start saying, who is God and who am I going to be in response to who he is? And that once Moses asked this question, it carries forward. It carries forward through the rest of the scriptures, and it carries forward through the rest of the overarching history of the people of God to this place right here, right now. That the way that we live our lives, that those of you who are in there this morning, that this is what we do. We continually are trying to understand more and more who is God, and we're continually trying to grow and change and become who we are going to be in response. These are important questions. Now, I think naturally the answers to these questions are going to be diverse throughout history and in this room. We're not all going to answer these questions the same. We're going to have different understandings of who God is, and we're going to have different ways of expressing that. And that's okay. I mean, we're a part of a diverse creation, so it makes sense that we would have a diverse response. But even in spite of the diverse response, there are some commonalities. There are some repeated answers that we can see that testify to God's faithfulness since the beginning. Answers that tell us who God is and who we are called to be in response. Lives of worship are informed by and draw upon answers to these questions. Questions that reveal that God knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows what we want, what we desire. He knows our fears and our hopes. He knows our despair. He knows the number of hairs on our head. And he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. These questions reveal that God does not simply wish to receive our worship as someone who's worthy of it, which he is. 
He is worthy of our worship, and he does receive it. But when we ask these questions and we look back and we remember, we see a God that doesn't just want to receive. He wants to engage our worship. He wants to inhabit our praise. He wants to bless the worshiper and bless the worshiping community. These questions reveal that worship is not just a response to who God is. It's also a relationship. These questions also remind us that it puts us into relationship with each other. Not just into relationship with God. And if we think about that, that makes sense. God has continually interceded in human history. Reaching out. Pursuing the people that he loves so much. So it stands to reason that if we engage him, he's going to put us in contact with those same people. He's poured out so much of his heart. He sent his son to suffer and die on the cross for those people. So if we align with, with God, he's going to put us in alignment with other people, with his creation that he loves. We have to do this in community. John Ortberg says it is impossible to love God without loving other people. And we think about that. We know that. We know that's true. We can't do this alone. We have to do this in community. We have to do this in family. So knowing that, how do those realities and these questions inform our understanding of worship? If worship is a response and a relationship to both God and his people, what does that mean for our definition of worship? Continuing to expand and grow and push out on this thing. Hopefully it's starting to get a little bit too big to wrestle with. Um, Again, we could stop here and spend some time. But let's uh, see if we can make this thing even, even bigger by talking about what worship is not. First thing that worship is not, it's not one thing. In spite of the song that we sang this morning that says one thing remains, it's not one thing. That was a different one thing. Anyway, let me ask you some questions about what worship might be. We'll start off with some easy ones. Is worship, is singing worship? It's okay. I know you're Methodist, but it's okay. You can, you can respond. Okay, yes, it can be. How about praying? Yes. yes. All right. And forgive my slow graphics here. That's awesome. Um, how about dancing? Okay. It can be. Here's one that we probably don't do very well. Silence? Can be. The sharing of the common meal, the feast, communion, yes, okay, can be. Let's get some trickier ones. How about exercising? Are there any uh, marathoners, triathletes out there who have gotten really close to Jesus on that run? I've been there. I mean, that happens, okay? Uh, I would say if you're not spiritual in your exercise, you might need to push a little harder. Um, It can be. How about your career? Your job, working, can that be worship? I believe so. Studying, all my students in the classroom right now. Yeah, absolutely. It can, it, all of these things can be worship. So if all of these things can be worship, we're affirming that it's not one thing. Okay? Second thing, it's not one way. A lot of scholars, even here, have been focused for the last 15, 20 years um, about returning to the ancient ways, getting back to the ancient church, doing it like the church in Acts did it. There's churches now that their names are like 
1910 or something, or 1212 or something, and it's all about Acts. Okay, they're all saying, we've got to be back with the, like the church in Acts. That's great. It's a scripture reference. I've got no problem with that. Um, but the truth is, at the time of Christ, there were 11 known sects of Judaism. 11 different ways to practice the Hebrew faith that we know of when Christ was alive. We know from the New Testament, from Paul's writings, that as Christianity spread as a Jewish sect, that it spread in varying ways in different places. And that there was probably 30 to 40 different Christian communities shortly after the time of Christ. So in the first century, you got at least 11 different ways to practice Judaism and at least 30 to 40 different ways to practice Christianity. And I ask you, which one of those is the ancient church? Which one of those is the church to which we're supposed to return? It's a tough question. It doesn't mean that we don't learn like we do here, that we don't push and try to lean into our Hebrew roots and understand where we come from. That's, that's a good thing. But when we start saying there's one right way back there in the past and we just got to dig deep enough and we'll find the one right way, the way that Jesus would have done it. And if we do it that way, then we're doing it right. It's not true. Let me give you an example. During that same late first century, early second century time, there were a number of different Christian communities scattered throughout the region. Three of those different communities had different understandings of baptism. Baptism can be a sticky subject. I'm, I was raised a Methodist. My wife was raised a Baptist. When we first got married, that was some tension there as we went to a Baptist church and wrestled with whether my baptism was valid, my Methodist baptism was valid in the Baptist church. I mean, we had some, some arguments about that. It's not unusual. We've been, we Christians have been arguing about baptism for a while. Um, in the first, late first century, early second century, there were Christian communities that viewed baptism as a cleansing. And if we look at their baptismal fonts, archaeologists have dug them up, their baptismal fonts look like wash basins. Because to them, baptism was a cleansing. It was coming and being cleansed of your sins, cleansed of your transgressions, and being purified. So they had this baptismal font that looked like a big wash basin, and they'd come and be washed in their baptism. There was another community that viewed, or communities that viewed baptism as dying with Christ and being resurrected into the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a scriptural context for that. That's something that Paul talks about. And so their baptismal fonts look like tombs. And they would go into this tomb and die and be resurrected into new life in Jesus Christ's resurrection. There was even a third community who viewed uh, baptism as deliverance. It reminded them of the story of Moses at the Red Sea and the Hebrew nation, God parting the Red Sea and delivering the Israelites from Pharaoh. And so their baptismal fonts looked like a path that they would walk through and the water would be separated and they'd walk through it and remember the deliverance of God in Exodus and remember that deliverance in their baptism. Which one of those is right? I mean, I love all three. I, I wish that my baptism had meant all three of those things to me when I got baptized. I don't think I was thinking on that level. But I, I do think my baptism could be a cleansing. It could be dying and being resurrected into Christ. And it could be the deliverance of God. All three of those things playing out in the first century in, in the Christian communities. And this is something that we have continued to argue about. There are 33,000 
Protestant denominations in the United States. And a lot of the splitting that we have done has been over baptism and the right way to do it. Whether we dunk, whether we sprinkle, it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's a lie. There's not one right way to do this. Another thing that worship is not, it's not one time. This is an easy one, right? If we said we're, we're supposed to worship on the Sabbath, and I would ask you, when's the Sabbath? Well, our Jewish forefathers and foremothers observed the Sabbath, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And Christianity started as a Jewish sect, and so they were still Jews, and they still observed the, observeth, observed the Sabbath on Friday night and Saturday. That's when they did it. But sometime in there, in the first century, second century, they started wanting to remember the resurrection of Christ, which took place on a Sunday, three days after the Sabbath. And so they started remembering the resurrection on Sunday. They still observed the Sabbath on Friday, but then they also had a remembrance on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or evening. Who knows? Which one is right? It's, it's neither. And if we know that it's not one time, then we start having to ask another question. If, if worship is not just Sunday morning or not just Saturday, if it's not just contained in the Sabbath, is there ever a time when we should say, time out, don't look, God, don't pay attention to this. Is there ever a time when our life should not be lived as an expression of responding to who he is? It's not one time. It continues. These are a lot of questions to explore and discuss. Remembering God, who God has revealed himself to be and what he has done is where we start to ask the questions we've brought up this morning. But we also have to ask, what does a life lived in worship look like? And what does it look like to wrestle with these questions and play them out in our lives? That answer is going to be varied, like we talked about. None of us are going to respond the same way. But even though we're varied and we're part of a diverse creation and there is beauty and diversity, I have been learning myself about a common posture. Um, And I want to show you some some pictures from the Priscilla Catacomb um, outside of Rome. And these are some of the earliest known examples of Christian artwork. It's probably late 2nd, early 3rd century. Uh, that the, the community in Rome, outside of Rome, uh, painted this, this catacomb and put these, these drawings up. Um, this is definitely the earliest known picture of Christian worship that we have here. Um, and there's, it's tough to see. The resolution's kind of bad. But number one, I'd like to point out that this is a woman. We know that because of the head covering. Um, you can't really see her feet, but she's on her toes, which is a symbol of dancing. She's dancing before the Lord. Um, and there's definitely a commonality. Let's put some, uh, some other pictures up here. This is the same catacomb that you're going to start to see here of resembles, resembling of Christian. This is called the orant posture, something that we've named it. Orant is just a fancy Latin verb, orare, which means to pray. And this posture has been historically known as a posture of pleading, of supplication, of prayer, and of worship. It's a symbol of Christianity. This is actually the tomb covering 
of a, of a Christian that had died. And if I could read whatever that is, Latin, or I think that's Latin, then I would tell you. But what I can point out to you here is the three symbols that mark this person as a Christian. We have the, the dove and the, the olive branch. Over here on the right, the P and the X, we have, that's called the Cairo. It's an early symbol of Christianity. But right there in the middle is, the, is this posture. That, if you walked up to somebody in the times of the early church and said, draw me a picture of a Christian, that's what they draw. That's how Christians were known, to live their lives. Many of you know that um, my wife Stacy and I got to go on sabbatical this, this summer. And um, we spent some time in Florida studying um, at school. And we spent some time in California at, at a church called Bethel. And I, I went into that trip thinking, okay... I'm going to go to Florida, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to have my nose in the books, and it's all going to be academic. Um, and then I'm going to go out to, to California, and it's all going to be spirit and music and um, praise and charismatic expressions. Um, and I, that's kind of how I pigeonholed this thing. But God expanded my definition, my understanding of worship, and showed me this in both places, in different ways. But still this expression, an expression of pleading, of supplication, of prayer, of worship. It's also a a posture of receiving. One of the things that I've been wrestling with since I got back from Bethel is that if I, I like to study. I like to study and get at the heart of something and understand something and find out the the origin and the language. If I study something and I find some truth... And I say, I've got this. I've got this on every side. I understand this. I know this. I get it. And I hold it. And I say, this is my truth. I've got it. If I do this, the only way I can share it is with a fist. And you're not going to really receive that very well. If I try to share this truth that I've grasped and I share it with you, the punch is not going to be that, that nice. The other thing is if I hold it like this, it cannot be added to cannot be expanded. It can receive no new information because I've figured it out. If I hold it like this, you can add to it. You can come up and see that I've got something. You say, that's great. Did you consider this? Let me tell you about my experience and you add to my understanding. You can take it. God can take it. He wants to take it away. This is a giving posture. It's a receiving posture. This is a grasping posture. It allows us to share. It allows us to receive. I don't mean to tell you that this is worship. I don't expect everybody to come in here next Sunday and as soon as we start the music, you know, you're all sold out. That's fine. I mean, it's great. But I'm not here to give you answers. I don't think that when I say what is a life lived in worship look like, I wouldn't give you one answer and say it looks like this. But I would invite you to remember and consider that this might be where it begins. Let's pray together. Father God, we bless you and we thank you and we love you. And we want so much to please you and to understand you and to respond to who you are. We want so much for our lives to look more and more like the people you are calling us to be the people that you want us to be forever and eternity. 
We don't want to wait for that, Father. We want to grow into that now, today. We ask for a new understanding, that you'll show us something new in your word, in your world, in the lives of others, that you'll teach us some new way to understand you, that you'll push the envelope of our understanding of who you are and also push the envelope of how we're going to respond, that you'll help us to grow into infinity, Father, to, to recognize that we cannot contain you, we cannot contain the expression of worship because of you. Father, the times that we grasp things and hold them, we ask forgiveness. We know we've messed this up, but we're not burdened by that. We accept the mercy and forgiveness that Christ offers us, and we let go. And we remember that Christ told us that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. And we remember that Christ said he does not desire sacrifice. He desires mercy. Father, help us to find the posture of worship in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to invite the the prayer ministers forward, um, as usual, over here on the corners. And if you have questions or need to talk to someone um, or just need to be prayed with or prayed over, um, come up and do that. We're going to put some some, uh, worship videos up and uh, some quiet music and just ask you to respect that what God might be doing in, in other people's lives and, and let this be a time and a space where people can, uh, can talk to each other and talk to God uh, and respond as they're being led. Have a good week.